eighth book in the Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, turn to page 258, and I would highly recommend that each and every person here have a Bible in front of them, because we're going to spend a lot of time in the Word this morning. That was Tim Winthy. Tim, thank you very much sharing uh, an excellent offering devotion. And before we dive into the book of Ruth, as the ushers continue, I want to let you know what's happening this month at FCC. Next week, we're going to be blessed to hear from two of the missionaries that we partner with, Jack Swanson and Barb O'Donohue. They're doing phenomenal jobs on the mission field in Chile and Africa, respectively. Uh, You're going to hear kind of a brief greeting from each of them, about 10 minutes each, During the morning worship time, excuse me, and then I'm going through puberty. I don't know what happened there. And then uh, during the Bible school hour, uh, that's a joke. During the Bible school hour, some of you are looking at me like, really? Uh, During the Bible school hour, we're going to gather in the fellowship hall, all who would like to. Several classes are combining, and we're going to be able to have an extended time with each of these great servants. Two weeks from today, we're looking at the life of Hannah, and that's going to be from 1 Samuel 1. It's going to be a totally different service than any of you have been a part of. Uh, The real emphasis is going to be prayer. Highly recommend you be with us two weeks from today. And then our final Sunday in June, the 24th, we're looking at Lydia and Priscilla from the book of Acts. We'll also be having our annual congregational meeting during the service, which is kind of a change. We're trying something new this year. We have an exciting announcement that we're going to make on the 24th that you will not want to miss. So I've told you, you don't want to miss the next three weeks. Spread the word. Get out. It's going to be a good time. I need to let you know, those of you that went to prom this year out at Little Galilee, the pictures are in, and they are in the foyer. Aaliyah's going to be back there after the service, and I'm saying those pictures are awesome. We need to grab them. And then one more thing. Wednesday of last week was my 20th wedding anniversary. And, uh, yeah, I love my wife. Give her a hand putting up with me. But I'd like to give her this flower because I love her so much. There you go. Um, actually, we had a baby dedication that uh, ended up canceling, so <laughs> why waste the flower, right? I shouldn't have said that, should I? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Book of Ruth, grab your Bible. Eighth book of the Bible. The book of Ruth takes place during the period of the judges. And that may not mean a lot to you, so let me put it into historical context for you. Abraham, his era was around 2000 B.C. Moses was around 1450 B.C. The kings, Saul, David, Solomon, around 1000 B.C. And sandwiched between the time of Moses and Joshua and the time of Saul, David, Solomon is this period of the judges. And that's where the story of Ruth emerges. And it's during the period of the judges that we see this terrible cycle play out over and over and over again in the book of Judges, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. Time and time again, Israel sins. God gets angry and oppresses them through a a foreign army, a foreign power. After a while, God's people say, this really stinks. We made this mess ourselves. They cry out to God in, in repentance. And every single time, God raises up a deliverer. We call them the judges. These are men and women like Deborah and and, uh, um, Jephthah is a judge, Gideon, Samson. There's some great, great accounts from the book of Judges. If there was a worldview during this period of time, it would really be described in the very last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21-25. And here's what it says. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. 
Now, you may read that verse and say, that sounds a little bit like America 2012, doesn't it? I mean, we're kind of just all doing our own thing in the, in the world and in our country. If it feels good, we're going to do it. If it brings pleasure or excitement or enjoyment, anything goes. Well, that's the era at which this story unfolds. And today's sermon is going to be unlike any other sermon you've probably heard of here at FCC. Most of our time today is going to be spent reading God's Word. We're going to read all four chapters. That's why you really need your Bible in front of you. And I want to explain your, your sermon handout from within the bulletin. What I want you to do as we go through this is as I read chapter 1, I've given you two blanks. I want you to write down anything that really jumps out at you. And then at the end of each chapter, I'm going to give you a key word, and then I've got some concluding remarks, and we'll call it a day. But the big idea as we dive in this morning, if you get nothing else, because maybe you're really tired or whatever it may be, here's the big idea from the book of Ruth, Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's a model for all of us, but here's what I want you to catch. The Lord blesses her because of this loyalty with an incredible legacy some of you will not believe. So with that, no further ado, let's dive into Ruth chapter 1. It reads, In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to his sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. 
And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Uh, did, did you write anything down? Did anything jump out at you? Several things jumped out at me as I was going through this exercise, and you may want to jot some of these down. Understand, first of all, this is a really average, basic family. Elimelech, Naomi, and the two sons, Kilion and Malon. The Bible is full of eccentric, powerful, wonderful people. This is a, a really average family. Average family. Keep that in mind for later in our story. What about Bethlehem? Did anything exciting happen in Bethlehem? Well, guess what? This is Bethlehem before it was Bethlehem. Here's what I mean by that. There hasn't been a King David yet. Jesus hasn't been born yet. So we hear Bethlehem, and what do we think? We think Christmas. We think birth of Jesus. This is before that, and Bethlehem's just another little village in the land of Judah. It's really no big deal. What about Orpah, the name Orpah? Did that ring a bell with anybody here? Did that sound familiar to anybody? I did some research this week. I've heard this. I wondered if it was an urban legend or if it was true. Oprah Winfrey's mother, when she was a teenager giving birth to Oprah in Mississippi, intended to name her daughter after Orpah in Ruth chapter 1. But she misspelled the name, and almost from the beginning, people referred to her as Oprah. And, you know, today she's worth billions and billions of dollars, but that, that's Oprah Winfrey's legacy. She was supposed to have been named after this Orpah. How would the Orpah Winfrey show sound? I don't know if that really would jive or not, but that's the, that's the truth. That, that's her beginning. I can't read Ruth chapter 1 without noticing the terrible, terrible series of circumstances that unfold. Naomi loses her husband, eventually loses her two sons, and she's left with only her two daughter-in-laws. Now, if that happened in 2012, that'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Understand, this happens probably around 1200 B.C., 1150 B.C. That was a male-dominated society. And this is a family where all the men are dead. All the males are gone. It gives us a little more insight into Naomi's heart, into her spirit, into her heartbreak. You've got to pay special attention to the despair that Naomi feels. She says, don't call me Naomi any longer. What'd she say? Call me Mara. The word Naomi means pleasant, but the word Mara means bitter. And what is Naomi's theology of what's happening here? Her theology is God is doing this to me. God's hand has gone out against me. I'm being punished because of something I obviously must have done. Now, I bring that up because there, there are some of us in Clinton, Illinois, there's some of us at First Christian Church, it's been a hard first five months of this year. 
It's been a challenging, challenging time. And I think a human reaction when something bad happens is, why, why is God punishing me? Why is God doing this to me? And I just want to throw that out there, and I'm going to come back to that at the end of the message. That, that's the spirit that Naomi has. One last thing that I have to pay note to is, is Ruth's incredible love for her mother-in-law in verses 16 and 17. You've probably heard those verses read at a wedding or a, a vow renewal. They might be the two most beautiful words attached to love and friendship in all of the Bible. And so when I think of key words in Ruth chapter 1, I really have to give you two words, not just one word. But the first word is tragedy. That's the heart of Naomi. But the other word that really rises to the top is the word commitment. That's the heart of Ruth. A commitment that, that is beyond description. A commitment that just didn't happen in this day and age. Orpah shed her tears and she went on her way to try to find a man. That was the thing to do. But Ruth said, not me. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. And what I love about it, she said, your God is going to be my God. Ruth chapter 1. Well, let's read on together. Ruth chapter 2. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called out. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about all you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, Ruth said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Now at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He's hooked already. Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. 
She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned, how I'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Make note of that word, kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers till they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Gleaning. How many of you know what it means to glean? Well, this is actually a biblical concept from the law of Moses. God's people were commanded, when, when you go out into your field to harvest, you may only go through your land one time. You can't go up, go back and pick up the leftovers. The leftovers were left to be gleaned by the poor and the destitute. Book of Leviticus chapter 19, book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. That was one of God's way for the community to care for the poor and the destitute. So this is a very biblical concept that we see taking place here. I read Ruth chapter 2, and I read that there's this guy named Boaz, and they're related to him, and he's a man of great standing. And Ruth just happened to end up working in one of his fields. And you know what I said to myself? Wow! What a coincidence. What a coincidence. Or is it a coincidence? Could it be that the hand of God is working in the life of someone who is distraught? The life of someone who's faced tragedy. I I noticed that right away Boaz noticed Ruth. Why do you think it was that Boaz noticed Ruth right away? I bet it was her good personality. What do you think? I bet he saw her and said she's got a great personality. That didn't work in either service. I need to scratch that one off. Okay. How much is an ephah? Anybody know? It's three-fifths of a bushel. That didn't mean a whole lot to us either. About 22 liters of barley she was able to glean. And that's a ridiculous amount from a gleaning by one woman herself. Almost unheard of. That's why Naomi was so excited when Ruth came home at night. And I... I can't leave chapter 2 without talking about this idea of kinsman redeemer. Listen to what the Essential Bible Companion says about the concept of the kinsman redeemer. It says, In Israelite society, responsibility for the well-being of members of the clan and protection of the clan lay with the clan. A kinsman redeemer was one who had arranged for the freedom of those who'd been reduced to debt slaves or for the reclamation of land belonging to the clan. It was a way of providing for those who'd become disenfranchised or destitute. See, in today's world, if something like this happened, this account happened in Clinton, Illinois, there's government assistance for someone to grab a hold of. There are churches all throughout our community, all throughout central Illinois, that reach out and help hurting people. Our food pantry alone open every Monday and Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. In this last calendar year, from May 11 to May 12, 670 families, hungry families, have been helped. But understand, in 1150 B.C., 
1200 BC, it was the responsibility of the clan. It was, it was the responsibility of the family. And that's where the concept of kinsman redeemer comes in. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. But when I think of Ruth 2, one word just jumps out, and it's that word grace. Grace. The grace of God is already being poured out on Naomi and Ruth, and they don't even realize it. They don't even realize that this isn't a coincidence. This isn't just a series of random events that are going okay. God's grace is being poured out upon them. Let's read on. Ruth 3. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be provided for? Is not Boaz with those servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, perfume yourself, put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And some of you with young kids in here right now, you're getting nervous. You're saying, is this one of the R-rated parts of the Bible that we talk about? Don't worry. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Verse 5, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone else could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me a shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ruth 3, I mean, a scheme is being planned. A plan is being hatched. And the cool thing about the Bible, uh, looking at it from the idea of a there's schemes all over the place. Some of us are reading through the Bible in 90 days. We started on Friday, June 1st, and we're in the middle, almost done with the book of Genesis. And all throughout the book of Genesis, we see schemes and plans being devised. Remember when Abraham told Sarah, pretend that you're my sister, not my wife? That was a scheme. Remember when Rebecca went to her son Jacob and said, I want you to pretend that you're Esau. We're going to trick your father Isaac, and he's going to bless you. That was a scheme. Remember in Genesis 38, some of you might not have read this yet, but Tamar pretended to be a prostitute so her father-in-law Judah would be with her 
and she would have a child through him. That was, that was a scheme. Those were all devious schemes. This is a much more honorable plan. This is a much more holy plan. Verse 9, you, you may not have caught this, but in verse 9, Ruth asked Boaz to spread the corner of your garment over me. Any idea what she was really doing here? Any idea at all? It was the culture of the day when that request was made. You were in essence saying to the man, I want to marry you. Will you marry me? Now, why it doesn't come out in the text better than that, I don't know. I've read this many times, never picked up on it till I really hit the commentaries. But Ruth is saying right here, I want to be your wife. I want you to be my husband. And Boaz, Boaz's response is one of excitement and enthusiasm. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Yes, he is kin to Elimelech. But there's someone that is a closer relative. He is a better kinsman redeemer. And we don't know if Boaz is going to be able to redeem Ruth or not. So that tells me we need to keep reading on. But before we do that, let me give you your key word. What is it? You guessed it. The word love. They are in love. Verse 4, or chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he'd mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he went to the kinsman redeemer and said, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. He's basically saying, Elimelech died, Naomi's come back, there's this piece of land. If you want to buy it, if you want to redeem it, it's yours. But if you don't want to, let me know, because I'm going to do it. The kinsman redeemer said, I will redeem it. It should be settled right here. Boaz continues on, verse 5. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Not only are you getting this land, but you're getting another wife, buddy. And uh, a lot of responsibilities. Many more mouths to feed. Verse 7. Excuse me, at verse 6. At this the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party would take off a sandal and give it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you're witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob, who together built up the house of Israel. May your standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Ruth 4. Bottom line, the plan works. 
That's something that I wrote down when I was reading this. The sandal exchange. That seems kind of odd to me. That's something else that I noticed. That was the way that transactions were done. One person would take off their sandal and give it to the other. Now, I don't mean it. I don't know if that means that he like hopped home, you know, the rest of the day or how that played out, but that was a legal method of transaction. The key word in Ruth chapter 4 has to be the word hope. Hope has finally been realized. That's the key word in Ruth chapter 4. Well, real quickly this morning before we leave, I want to give you some, some lessons that I want you to take. Anytime we read an account from 1150 B.C., the temptation is to say, but what's that got to do with me? There's at least four things that I want you to take with you this morning. And number one is this, understand this isn't new. Bad things happen to God's people. The storms of life will visit. Some of you are living testimonies of that, unfortunately. But what I want you to see is how we handle these tough times can ultimately help define our future. And for too many people, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we shut God out. We shut other Christ followers out. We go into the cave and we just try to do life on our own. And it's miserable and it's chock full of despair. And there's no hope. Understand, bad things happen to God's people. I wish it wasn't the case, but it's a reality. And there's a lesson from the book of Ruth for us to learn. Number two, I want you to see that the loyalty of Ruth toward her mother-in-law, it's almost unheard of in that day, in this day. But each one of us, we need a Ruth in our lives. Let's look at those verses one more time, Dana. Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And there I will be buried. That's friendship defined. That's extreme friendship. And I know for me in my life, there's times I needed a Ruth in my life. And I'm thankful for good, godly friends that have been there in my darkest hour. People like Jeff Mayfield. People like Ed Bacon, people like Eric Ewald, people like Ernie Harvey. I'm thankful that I have many Ruths in my life. Number three, catch this. The providence and sovereignty of God is obviously at work in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. I told you earlier, when you read chapter two, you say to yourself, well, that's just a great coincidence. She just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. Was it a coincidence? Or was it the providence of God in action? Was it the sovereignty of God in action? And let me just remind you that what we're reading about today, that doesn't just happen to people named Ruth. God's at work in your life and my life. Maybe you're going through a storm of life and you don't get it and you've not had a good explanation for why you're facing what you're facing. Could it be the providence of God at work in your life? Could it be that in God's sovereign plan, he has a much better day in store for you? Could it be? And then number four, and finally this morning, I can't read the book of Ruth without being reminded of the grace of God 
toward outsiders. It's not just a post-Jesus thing. Most of us, when we think of the grace of God toward outsiders, we call them Gentiles. We think of the book of Acts, and we think of Peter in Acts chapter 10, and he goes up on the roof, and he has a vision, and God says, nothing that I have made is unclean. And the message is obvious. The gospel is available to everyone. But you realize sprinkled all through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is this picture of the grace of God toward the outsiders. Do you realize that being from Moab, Ruth wasn't even allowed to enter the house of the assembly, the synagogue, the place of worship? She was an outsider. And God's grace is poured out upon her. You may ask, how was God's grace poured out upon her? Let's conclude our time together by reading the rest of the story. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. We'll put these scriptures up on the screen. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life. He will sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. i got to stop right there. They said that your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who she called her daughter, is better to you than seven sons. In a male-dominated society, one son was better than seven daughters. And yet the people of the assembly in unison say, she's better to you than seven sons. Look how this story ends. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And in case you're wondering, yes, it's that David, King David. The man after God's own heart. What an awesome, awesome story where an outsider from Moab who was grieving the loss of her husband ends up being the great-grandmother of the greatest king Israel ever knew. My friends, that's one happy ending to a story, let me tell you. And so your bottom line this morning is this. Ruth was redeemed by Boaz. She became his kinsman redeemer. The sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the plan of God, even though it didn't look like it was even in the neighborhood as the events of Ruth chapter 1 were unfolding, they were fulfilled when Boaz redeemed Ruth. But what I want you to see today, the second part of our bottom line is that you've been redeemed I've been redeemed as well by a different kinsman redeemer, a better kinsman redeemer. You know him by the name Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 puts it like this, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, without blemish or defect. Let's pray. God, thank you for today.
Long message. Lots of Bible. Many, many verses. Almost 80 verses of Scripture. And yet through it all, we are reminded that even when it might not seem like it's the case, you're in control. Even when we might not want to acknowledge it, you have a plan. And as we stand here this morning and, and we've talked about kinsmen redeemers, what it means to be redeemed, we're reminded that when you sent your perfect son Jesus Christ to the cross, that provided redemption for me, a, a no good sinner. It provided redemption for, for all of us, sinners who fall miserably short of the mark. And so on this day that we study the eighth book of our Bible, we're reminded that it points us to Jesus. It points us to the cross. It points us to the resurrection. It points us to hope. Thank you for Ruth, for loyalty, the model that she is for all of us. But thank you so much more for Jesus, the true difference maker. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.